Thanks for downloading this episode from Teachers Talk Radio. You can find the full schedule and listen back to all our shows at ttradio.org. Enjoy the podcast. Good evening and welcome to Teachers Talk Radio. It's Monday the 21st of August and you're listening to The Late Show with Tom Rogers. What difference do teachers really make to exam results? And what are your back-to-school top tips? I'm going to hand over in one short moment to Tom Rogers. Good evening, everybody, and welcome once again to Teachers Talk Radio uh, Monday night. We love Monday nights in August. We absolutely love them, don't we? Um, we've got an amazing show uh, coming up for you this evening. Really looking forward to it. Um, I've got two, potentially three, amazing guests uh, for part one, which is all about the question that is on your screen now. What difference do teachers really make to exam results? Um, And just before I bring my guests in and sort of talk to them about this, I thought it would be good to, first of all, introduce where the idea for this show came from. Um, And... Probably um, it was my own personal experience of a post-exam results day meeting with uh, some of my superiors in in one of my schools many many years ago, where um, I was I was devastated because I as a department head uh, I'd missed my target, which I. Th- can't remember exactly what it was i think it was something like achieve you know in the old days sort of 60 percent a star to c and i think the the overall score was something like 57 percent and because of the way results were talked about i guess within that culture and environment i was utterly devastated that i was three or four percent below that um from a departmental level and I, I went away from that meeting feeling absolutely trashed and useless as a teacher um, to the point where I remember being on the train um, in, I think it was near Liverpool somewhere, nearly in tears because I was just so utterly, I blamed myself for the results that I, that I had got. And from that point on, and this was many, many years ago, but from that point on, I I sort of invested myself into what can happen to teachers in a similar situation and trying to at least help as many teachers as possible to, at, at, at the very least, explore the evidence around how student exam results happen and why they happen, why some students achieve, and most particularly the impact of the teacher on that. Now, whenever I've talked about it over the last many, many years, one of the common questions or one of the common points to me has often been, well, Tom, are you saying that teachers don't make a difference? No, absolutely not. Um, I'm not saying teachers don't make a difference. Um, I think one of the main points that I've tried to make through a blog that I wrote for the TES and through all other things that I've said and done and written is that the way we measure and the way we imagine the impact a teacher has on student attainment, in my opinion, is much higher than what it actually is in reality. That's my opinion based on the things that I've read since that meeting that was terrible for me on a personal level, 
that exam review meeting, we'll call it, um, where, you know, it, it just made me feel awful. Um, but that sort of led me down this, this research rabbit hole, which has been very positive. Now, on the show tonight, um, and, and to start with, I've, I can't believe the brain power that I've managed to, <laughs> to get here. We've got, um, I'll, I'll, I'll run through the guests that, that, we've, uh, that we're being joined by. So we've got uh, Stephen Gorard. Stephen is the director of the Durham University Evidence Centre for Education. Now, I have seen Stephen talk in Durham about all things education. Um, this was, I think, last year at some point. Really enjoyed his presentation. Um, on It was all about, God, I can't remember what it was about, but I remember tweeting a few things from it, thinking that's very revelatory. <laughs> um, so, you know, so it's an absolute pleasure to be joined by Stephen. Um, secondly, I've got Professor Robert Plomin, PhD, and also CBE joining me as well. Now, Robert is MRC Research Professor in Behavioural Genetics at the Institute of Psychiatry, Psychology and Neuroscience, King's College, London. Um, and he, amongst many accolades and things that he has done in his career, um, he is well known in 1995 for the uh, TEDS study, which was the Twins Early Development Study, which followed 10,000 pairs of UK twins from infancy through early adulthood and has been continuously funded for 25 years as a programme grant from the Medical Research Council. He has published more than 800 papers and is the author of the best-selling textbook in the field, as well as a dozen other books. Um, he has been elected the youngest president of the International Behaviour Genetics Association and has received Lifetime Research Achievement Awards for the major associations related to this field. So it's absolutely unbelievable to have Robert. Now, as if it couldn't get any better than that, um, I've also got the Welsh legend himself, Dylan Willem, who is joining us all the way from sunny New Zealand. Um, Dylan is a Welsh educationalist. He is an emeritus <laughs> Emeritus Professor of Educational Assessment at the UCL Institute of Education. Uh, he lives in Florida, the United States. Amongst his many accolades is many, many, many best-selling books, um, which I can't really go through them all here. Um, if you don't know who Dylan is, I'm sure you probably do. But if you don't, please look him up because he's, he's amazing. Um, so it's incredible to be joined by, by these three people to discuss this topic that I am incredibly interested in. So I'm going to start with, with Robert, first of all. Um, Robert, we'll just check that you're there. Yes, I am. Thanks. And thanks for inviting me, Tom. Good evening. Absolutely amazing. Thanks for giving up your time. I'm going to get, I'm going to get straight into this, um, Robert, because in an article I wrote uh, many moons ago now, it's quite a while ago, I think it was 20, maybe 2017, and I talked about... Um, the, the headline, which I didn't come up with, is teachers can only ha ever have a small impact on their students' results, yet they are judged as if they are 100% responsible. Now, I wonder, just to start with, what do you think of that headline, Robert? Yeah, well, I, I agree completely, and I'm probably coming at it from a different perspective than most of you, but... Um, I'm pleased to talk to groups like this because I'm, I don't think education quite has take, gotten the message from genetic research. And there's so much background here, but I'm just going to go to the, the headline that let's look at GCSE scores because that's yeah. kind of the current topic, right? And 
you know, kids differ in their GCSE scores and what causes those differences. And you're saying that the teachers are given credit and blame for how well kids do on the GCSE. And we, we'll talk about that. But I think the first point to make is that people don't realize that by far the most important systematic cause of individual differences in GCSE scores is inherited DNA differences. I mean, the evidence is, is rock solid that about 60% of the differences in GCSE scores are due to inherited differences. And that's true across all subjects. So it isn't just like math or science, it's humanities just as much. So you know, there's 60% and the rest is not genetic and it's environmental, but, it's, but actually it's not uh, the environment that people tend to think it is. It isn't like um, nurture, it isn't systematic effects of the family environment by and large. Now, Mm. Um, it, that takes a bit to explain, but I guess the main, first point I wanted to make is that genetic differences are so much more important than people think. And I, I would like to get to the point where I can show you that it's true. It's already 60% of the variance. It's, it's already so much more important than any other source of differences between kids. And in fact, teachers account for a very small portion of the differences in GCSE scores. So, you know, one thing I find that's helpful is um, we're dealing with variants here, individual differences. Why, why do kids differ? And um, a, a good comparison here is with Ofsted ratings, which you've, you've talked about. Tom. Mm -hmm. And I, I was amazed, I was at a conference a few, you know, about 10 years ago with education epidemiology types and just said, how much variance in GCSE scores is accounted for by Ofsted school ratings. So, you know, kids go to different schools and they have different ratings. And so, and, and that's a big deal, right? Because it's uh, the, the basis for the um, league tables and it changes people's lives. So how much variance in GCSE scores is accounted for by Ofsted ratings? And the answer is 4%. And if you take into account the fact that kids you know, that there's a strong relationship with socioeconomic status, FCS. And when you take that into account, it's 1%. Which, you know, I know it sounds mind-boggling, but, you know, I, I feel these are very solid results. So, mm -hmm. so there's so much more to say about this, but I'll, I'll, I'll let you Yeah, well, we've got, yeah. we are going to get so much more into it, and I can't wait. Um, I'm going to bring Dylan in. Uh, Dylan, are you there? I am. Fantastic. Um, thanks so much for, for joining in, Dylan. Um, and I have to say, Robert listened to my interview with you and then agreed to come on here. Isn't he mad? <laughs> I, um, thought it, I, I thought it was I a great interview. That... <laughs> well, it was because Dylan was the interviewee, um, obviously. Um, Dylan, I want to ask you, the, the article I wrote, which I referred to earlier with the headline of teachers can only have a small impact on their student results. I know you commented on that article and you said, Quote, I think it depends on what you mean by small. Compared to an average teacher, how much higher in, say, GCSE grades would you estimate a student would score when taught by a teacher in the top 5% of effectiveness? So I want to ask you, Dylan, from, uh, from, from almost like the teacher perspective, like, can you sort of explain that comment and sort of dig into that a little bit for us? Sure. So Robert's absolutely right. 
the, the largest factor in academic achievement is outside the teacher and even outside the school's control. But there are differences. So my own work using both OECD data for things like PISA and looking at value added using GCSE suggests that the school effect in England is about 8%. In other words, that 8% of the variation in student achievement is attributable to the school that the child attends. Now, the problem with that is it doesn't tell you anything about individual teachers. And so the research, mostly from the US, suggests that individual teachers can have a large, much larger impact. But my hunch is that good teachers are pretty randomly distributed around the system. So the reason that school effects, differences between schools seem to be quite small is because most schools have some pretty amazing teachers and some not so amazing teachers. And so because we're unable to identify the characteristics of effective teachers, it's really hard for schools to kind of corral them all. And I think I come back to schools like Michaela School, where you've got students achieving two GCSE grades higher than the national average across a range of subjects. So schools can make a difference. The other thing we have to say is that it's dangerous to actually speculate about what might be on the basis of what was. So the fact is, I'm convinced that if teachers were more effective, teachers could be supported in becoming more effective, doing the things that make, make the biggest difference, more effective curriculum, more effective pedagogical practices, we can actually increase the school effect. But, but the, 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 variation, yeah, go on. the variation point is really important because actually I want to reduce the school effect. If all students, get, and this is the real problem with all genetics research, if all students go to a very, very effective school, then the genetic effect will go up, not down. Because I would, I would like the, how well kids do to be independent of which school they go to because every school is a great school. So it's quite hard to get your head around that, but, but, but we actually want to increase the proportion of, of student achievement that is attributable genet to genetic factors by reducing the environmental component. I want to I want to uh, go back to Robert and then I'll I'll bring in Stephen as well um, after this. But Robert, I want to I want to ask. Can, can you, I can I just address um, that point though? Because I think it's such, yeah. Please it, do. Yeah. I was just going to read. I was actually going to let okay. you address it and just read us a quote you said, which is a quote from you, which is schools matter, but they don't make a difference. Which sort of in in some ways seems to run parallel to what Dylan said. But I want you right. to sort of address. But that. more specifically, yeah. the point um, that Dylan made about. Uh, can be rephrased as heritability, that is the extent of genetic influence, is an index of educational equality, opportunity. Because as he was saying, if you remove all educational uh, differences, you know, in privilege and resources, if everyone got exactly the same education, then you've eliminated an important source of individual differences in achievement but you're left with the genetic differences so that the genetic differences will account proportionately for more of the variance. So heritability, that is an index of the extent of genetic influence, is an index of social equality, which, as Dylan says, is hard to get your mind around, but it's an important implication. Yeah, yeah. Um, Dylan, do you want to sort of come back on that? Yeah, absolutely. So I mean, my experience is that people don't like the idea that how well kids do is influenced by genetics and they want the genetic component to be zero. Exactly. 
and I'm saying quite the opposite. We want the genetic component to be to be greater. And maybe an analogy would be helpful here. We everybody accepts that physical height is to some extent determined genetically. It's, it's a genetic component, but it's also environmental in terms of nutrition and early life. But if, if every child is well nourished, then the proportion of the variation in height that is attributable to genetic factors goes up because every child is well nourished. And in the same way, the genetic component or genetic contribution to academic achievement will go up if every child gets a good education. Mm. Yep. Robert, just before being Stephen. Yep, yep. I, I, it, it, I'm really glad to hear you say that, Dylan, because I think few, few people in education understand that point. So it's very good to emphasize it. It's time for a fresh start to language learning. Pearson Edexcel's new student-centred French, German and Spanish 2024 GCSEs cater to the needs of all learners, regardless of their background, ability or reason for studying. Rooted in learned language knowledge, their assessments are transparent and accessible, allowing all students to showcase their language skills. Through inclusive and relatable content, the new Pearson Edexcel MFL GCSEs build a shared cultural capital that helps students develop an understanding of and appreciation for the wider world. Find out more at go.pearson.com forward slash MFL GCSE 24. Fantastic. Um, Stephen, I, I want to bring you in on this a little bit um i wondered whether you had any thoughts on this that the, the difference that schools and teachers make to exam scores yeah i'm, I'm not sure i'm going to say anything i mean very fundamentally different but i'd like mm. to go back to the question so this is aside from what's happened so far and then i'll come back to what people have said but i say what difference do teachers really make to exam results i think people audiences often get confused between two different questions one is, what would happen if teachers didn't exist or didn't do their job? And how well would, how well would students do well in exams? And what, what's the differential impact of different qualities of teacher? Now, I, I sense from what people have been talking about so far that they're talking about the second one. But I thought just before we go too much into that ground, we should make the point that it is clear from regression discontinuity designs and others that um, if children don't go to school or if they don't have teachers or, or they don't have trained teachers, then their exam results are clearly lower. Their standards of attainment are lower. So um, I don't know what the figures are and they vary between primary and secondary years and so on. But you can imagine that teachers and schools make about 30 percent of the difference to how well uh, children would do in attainment as opposed to not having teachers in schools. But what, so in a sense, we can say a sigh of relief. We're not saying teachers are redundant or useless or whatever. The question comes to an empirical one of how do we decide if individual teachers or teachers with particular characteristics are getting better results with equivalent children? And of course, that's a really hard question to judge, as the previous two speakers have said. Uh, mm. But it could be, mm. it'll be, it's very small. It doesn't mean that there aren't really good teachers who are making a big difference proportionately to their students. It's just really, really hard to judge. Because, you know, as, as we've said, a lot of the variation is due to background, maybe to genetics, to um, other issues in life like poverty. Mm. Once you factor all those in, there's very little left over apart from error components. 
that we can attribute mm. safely to the impact of teachers. And I'm very um, suspicious of the claims about teacher effectiveness. I know there's a lot going on in America, but I mean, Dylan, for example, said something about uh, the difference that uh, would be made to the results of a student who was taught by a, by a teacher who was in the top 5% of effectiveness. And my query is always, how do we judge effectiveness of teachers without looking at results that their students get? And if we look at the results that their students get, then what we're saying is tautological. The teachers that get the best results are the, are the teachers that get the best results. If we have a separate way of saying, yes, these are good teachers and these are not good teachers, and then look at the difference in, in attainment, which I've never seen done properly at all, then we'd be able to answer the question. But at the moment, I just think methodologically, it's a mess. I mean, there's more I can say, but I'll leave it for the moment. Um, Dylan, I don't know whether you want to come back on that one about this idea of the, the. I think it was something along the lines of, I've lost your quote on it now, but it's something along, along the lines of the top 5% uh, of teachers account for, was it half a GCSE grade or something? Something like that. Yeah. I mean, do you sort of take Stephen's point about the sort of reliability of how you, how can you judge that effectively based on the reliability of saying this teacher is in the top 5%? Well, it is a little bit like pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps. But what the U US research tends to do is to take teachers, mm -hmm. um, look at the students that they teach, look at the progress that those students make, and then to look to see if students make systematically more progress in some teachers' classrooms than others. So they do it as a correlation. And so if teachers, if teachers had, if all teachers were equivalent, if all teachers were equally effective, then which classroom you were in would have no impact on how much progress you made. And it turns out that's not what the data show. So a large number of studies done in different states with different sets of assumptions consistently find that the correlation between um, teacher quality and student progress is about 0.15. So in other words, yeah. students score about 0.15 standard deviations higher if they're teaching, te if they're taught by teachers who are in the top one sixth of quality. So, you know, I, I, I think the important point is the effects aren't zero. Uh, there, there are some differences. And there's some nice work by Thomas Kane and his colleagues as part of the um, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation's Measures of Effective Teaching Project where they took teachers who they, they found to be more effective in one school and moved them to a, a different school with a very different socioeconomic context and found that those teachers were also more effective there. And we've seen some interesting work in Dallas where teachers who are identified as more effective in one school are offered a bonus to transfer to a, a less advantaged school and they make a substantial difference there as well. So I think the evidence is pretty strong that individual teachers do carry around with them some things in their heads that make them more effective. Um, you obviously have to make heroic assumptions to actually pin that down. Mm -hmm. I think this idea of somewhere between 0.1 and 0.2 standard deviations, um, yeah. different student achievement, that seems to be a, a pretty robust figure in the United States. We also have to understand, of course, that it could be that British teachers are less variable than American teachers. My hunch is that that's true, actually. My hunch is that the kind of quality assurance we have in teacher preparation in the UK means that the, the teacher effect may well be smaller in the UK because the, the average teacher quality is much less variable. 
Mm. It's very difficult to generalize one content to the other. Just two seconds, Stephen. I I just want to bring in Robert first before we sort of dig into that a bit further. Because Robert, I I know you did an interview, which I watched actually. um, And in this interview, the interviewer said to you something on the lines of, as long as the school isn't harmful and, you know, the children are safe and uh, and so on. Um, beyond that, it, it doesn't really make that much difference. And and in this particular interview, you, you sort of replied, yeah, that's what I'm saying. So I wondered whether I want to give you a chance to really sort of dig into that and, and explain that to us and your thinking around this idea of school effectiveness. And I want to ask Dylan as well later, because I know Dylan mentioned, uh, uh, we're not going to mention particular schools, but there are schools out there where you could say, okay, you know, the results are higher. Um, There are others who would say, well, hang on, those schools are implementing covert selection. Those schools are covertly selecting students who they think are uh, going going to do better, essentially. Now, that's not fact. That's just what some people say. And there are others who say, like Dylan's just said, that those schools are achieving better results. So therefore, that proves that schools you know they do make a difference so i you know i want to go back to you and and sort of give you a chance to really explain and dig into to your thinking on this well um there's so much background here say about the twin method you mentioned my twin study in the uk and yeah you know to to understand that it's based on identical and non-identical twins and i don't think we want to go into all of that But the important point is, though, that we're talking about what is in a particular population. We're describing in that population with teachers and schools that differ however they differ. To what extent do those differences make a difference as in kids say GCSE performance as compared to inherited DNA differences? Now, um, I think um, uh, Stephen talked about, well, what if you don't go to school at all? That's, that's not relevant to this issue of what causes differences in the population that we see. Our focus is on what makes kids different. Why do they perform differently on GCSE? And going to school or not is not part of that variance, right? Mm. So that's, and then also we're talking about what is versus what could be. It's an important distinction. You know, you could say, well, if you had teachers in the top 5%, here's an effect you might get or you do get. But we're talking about the whole range of schools and kids go to schools with varying types of teachers and resources and all of that. So we're talking about what is. And that's important because it it doesn't say what could be. You know, you could have a radically different innovation that has a big effect, even though GCSE scores are highly heritable. It's possible. But what we're saying is in the UK at this time, Um, we're finding that inherited DNA differences account for so much more. And there's another issue here specifically related to the teacher effect. Um, In our twins, in key stage one, these 10,000 pairs of twins, um, they they go to the same schools, but half of them are separated in in the first Mm. couple of grades. And that's some, by some schools, an intentional policy. Sometimes it's the parents who believe that the kids ought to be separated. But we find it makes no difference in their resemblance in GCSE scores, whether they had the same teacher or different teachers. And so that suggests to me that uh, it's another way of, 
triangulating on this issue and saying that teachers have surprisingly little effect on average in the population. And again, we're describing what is rather than saying what could be. We're not talking about the extremes of abuse or neglect or you know, mm. a really terrible schools. But I think it is an important distinction. And there's so much more background here, I could say, but um, I'm more interested in well, hearing please what... do. We've got, we've got loads of time, well, Robert. So, so tell us. Tell us that, that background a bit um, more. You know, I'd like to know, you know, just from a wider... I'd like to know more about this study, and I'd like to know you know, what the key findings were. Okay. I mean, I could just read them off the screen, but it'd be yeah. nice to hear from you who actually okay. did it. <laughs> well, this involves the twin method, and there's several different methods. Uh, another important method is an adoption method, where you separate nature and nurture by studying family members who are adopted apart. And they don't share uh, environments, they just share genes. But this twin study is is a, a method that's been around for 100 years. It takes advantage of the fact that 1% of all births are twins. One third of those are identical twins. They're called monozygotic. They come from a single fertilized egg. So they really are clones of one another. They have the same DNA when we sequence their DNA. The other type of twin, two thirds of the twins, are in England called non-identical twins and the rest of the world called fraternal twins. They're like any brother and sister, 50% similar genetically. So we study these kids when they go to school, we get their key stage results from the national curriculum and now the national pupil database. And um, what we find that I, I hadn't expected is that even in first grade at key stage one, the heritability is about 60 some percent of, of the English math and they don't have science at that age. So when you say, when you say that 67%, are you saying that 67% of any results they get can be yeah. put down to heritability. No, that's right. That's, it's important to say that what we're talking about with heritability is a descriptive statistic of how much variance is accounted for by inherited DNA differences. And so it's focused on why kids differ. And, the, and I didn't okay. really put the punchline there with the I, twin method. If a trait is heritable, you'd have to predict that identical twins are more similar than non-identical twins because the identical twins are twice as similar genetically. They're genetically identical, whereas the non-identical twins are only 50% similar genetically. Yeah. So when you test them on the school grades, you find there's a big difference between MZ, uh, that is identical, and non-identical twin correlations, how similar they are. And you can use that then to estimate how much of the variance in these educational achievement scores are due to inherited differences. And that's how we get to the 60%. But what surprised me, and we can talk more about that, but what surprised me is that it's just as heritable in key stage one as it is at key stage four. Well, I was going to ask you that because you said 67% was it variability at key stage one. I was going to ask if that drops going down towards, going up towards key stage no, four. No, it doesn't change at all. And what's even more surprising to me that educational achievement at, at key stage one is more heritable than general intelligence, IQ scores. They're only about 40% heritable in the early school years, which surprises a lot of people because a lot of people think, well, ability, that's heritable. But achievement, the word actually means by dint of effort, doesn't it? It implies environmental influence. But in fact, you know, um, edu educational attainment is about 60% heritable at key stage one, whereas IQ is only about 40% heritable. By the time you get to key stage three, 
the heritability of intelligence goes up, whereas the heritability of educational achievement does not change. It doesn't change through to A levels. So um, mm. I think that's... And just to, just to look at outside of that 67%, which you're saying is, um, again, excuse my sort of, I'm not an expert on this, but 67% is uh, the, of the variability is hereditary. Yes. Out, outside of that 67% at key stage one, what are the other factors? And do we have any estimates on the percentages for the other factors? Like, yeah. for example, y- you know, if we would say teaching, what, 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 you know, what are the other percentages there? Yeah, well, um, this, this, inv- this is a little bit more complicated, but we, we use these behavioral genetic designs to separate nature and nurture. I mean, it used to be assumed that all differences are due to um, environment and specifically nurture, that is, family environment, and shared influences like school. Kids in a family go to the same school. So the reason they, they could be similar is because of nurture, that is shared environmental influences. But what we're finding is that only about half of the environmental variance is due to those shared environmental factors. The other is due to the, what we call non-shared environment which is a whole nother story. But of the shared environment, we can't assume it's due to schools or teachers. I, I think the evidence suggests that it's more due to family background and a large part of it is due to socioeconomic status. Yeah, yeah. Um, Dylan, I, 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 Dylan, I'm gonna ask you, how long have I actually got with you here? Because I know you very kindly come on this fleeting visit on here. So how long have I got with you? Yeah, no, I should be able to stay the whole time. I've just got to go, go and get some breakfast before I go and present a workshop. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, well, listen, I, was, I want to ask you everything sort of Robert's just said. Um, you know, I suppose you're not necessarily saying, are, are you disagreeing with him or are you saying you agree with him, but you're saying that the teaching with the, you know, it's still notable that the impact the teacher has? Yeah. I'm saying that it's it's notable. It, it it is small in comparison with the the factors that, that Robert has mentioned, but it's substantial. It's the only thing we've got to play with, and it could be made big, bigger. So I think we can we've got already got some quite good data from randomized control trials that show that when teachers make greater use of formative assessment in their teaching, that students make more progress. There's some pretty convincing research from the United States using involving again randomized controlled trials that some curricula are more effective than others. So, you know, I, I, Robert's work is important because it, it it kind of makes it clear to people what's, what sorts of things we can expect schools to do. But that doesn't, in my view, detract from the really important work, which is to say, so how can we improve, how can we increase the, the impact of schools? Yeah, whatever, thing, whatever impact that is. Yeah, and, and the other thing to be aware of is that, you know, all these variables are very messy. So I came across one study that suggested about a third of the variation in IQ scores was not caused by cognitive functioning, but by persistence. But so could you say more... the same, Dylan, on, on the teacher effectiveness studies? Could we, could we yeah. say that, that they're equally, you know, flawed? In, you know, I don't know, because I don't know what... Because I always think, when I think of researchers judging 
teach. I know you, you've talked, we've talked about this before, but we talk about lesson observations. We talk about student data. We talk about all these different things to judge, you know, the, the trials they do in schools when we know that schools are such chaotic, crazy places where one day can be very different to the next and so on and so forth. So it's like, I'm not saying I don't believe the data on it, but like I've got serious questions about how much I like buy into any of these studies. I know some of the like meta studies with like massive you know remits and stuff like that so i'm not saying i'm not saying i i am dismissing it all i'm just saying like there's got to be some proper doubts about it well first of all i'm very skeptical about most meta-analyses yeah. i think meta-analyses tell us less than the constituent studies so i'm not a big fan of meta-analysis in, in education but i think some of the studies are pretty well designed and the best studies take into account the messiness of schools. So the Education Endowment Foundation's evaluation of the Embedding Formative Assessment Program that Siobhan Leahy and I produced just basically took 140 high schools and the evaluators then randomly allocated them to treatment and control. It was a pre-registered study. They actually included all the students in the, in, in the schools irrespective of how well the program was implemented and found a significant effect. So that, it's got the highest security rating that the, the Education Endowment Foundation yeah. gives. It, it's a pretty robust result. And you know, we, don't know, we don't know how those effects were produced, but you know, we have some pretty good large-scale trials that, that say, when you give teachers access to these resources and leave them alone to get on with it for a couple of years, students actually score higher. So. You know, there's a limited because you're, you're relying on GCSEs or other kinds of assessments that are easy to administer. But I think that some of those results are pretty robust, especially when they're direct experiments involving random allocation. And that, that's why, uh, you know, I, I'm dismissive of a lot of correlational studies. But um, Steve, you, thanks, Dylan. Um, Stephen, do you have any thoughts on anything? Because we've heard um, Robert and Dylan say a lot there. Have you got any further was, thoughts? I didn't notice that. You asked me to wait 20 minutes ago, and I was beginning to wonder if I should be on this call. Um, I, I, <laughs> well, I'm sorry, Stephen. I'm I'd sorry. Like to summarize, uh, I think all three of us agree that the largest proportion of the variation explained in student results is not to do with schools and teachers. It comes from before genetic and other factors. Right? It seemed to me that um, Robert was saying uh, that the teachers don't really play a huge part on average in the normal system and that Dylan was saying well maybe they play a bit more than you think and I was suggesting we don't know and I still go back to my point that I mean I think Dylan said it again about top six of teachers in quality how do you judge if the teachers without looking at their results and if you look at their results then all you're saying is teachers that we consider effective get good results which is, as I say, it's, a, it's more than just using your own bootlaces. It is simply a tautology. So I, I don't think we know. You can try and judge other ways like observation and so on, but we know that they're very flawed. So even if you then find you don't know it's to do with flaws in the way in which you, you judge teachers. I wanted to move on, though, to a slightly different idea, which is, um, I mean, many people have said, well, the only policy to play with is teachers and quality. I'm not sure that's quite true. In most, there's a huge. You're cut, Stephen. You're you're cutting out a little. Bit. There's a lot of social segregation between schools, and poverty segregation and racial segregation. 
And there is evidence that reducing that can produce a small reduction in the attainment gap between the haves and the not-haves. And there are policies like the pupil premium policy in England that can affect, I suppose, what Robert would call the genetic gap. What I mean by that is, um, yes, you want all children to have a good education and have good nutrition. But in the end, what you can then do is prioritise the funding to the people who need it most, rather than saying it's an equal, um, it's an equal table. So that those who, perhaps because of their genetic inheritance, would need more help learning to read or learning to count, would get that more help. So you can actually cut into the genetic gap. It's not as to, oh, let's, the more we improve, the bigger the genetic component. I don't think that's true. Again, I've got more I can say about what people have responded, but I want to see what people think about that. There is more we can do. I'm more optimistic, but it isn't necessarily about teachers. Oh, so I should just say, I think somebody misunderstood my point about teachers. What I was saying is teachers themselves respond to school effectiveness work by saying, oh, does that mean teachers don't make any difference? My point is they do clearly make a difference, and that's clear even in what is situations like in India or Pakistan, where very fewer than 100% of students go to schools. Schools matter, teachers matter. The question is, does, do they make a difference within that system? That, but that's that's the yes. question we're asking, yes. isn't it, Stephen? I don't I don't think anybody here is disputing that a teacher can make a difference. I no, but my point, was, my point was to clear up to listeners. We're not saying teachers don't make a difference because that is a common response to this kind of conversation. Are saying we shouldn't bother? No, we're not saying that. What we're saying is, is there evidence that specific teachers or specific teachers with specific characteristics can get better results with equivalent children? And my answer to that question empirically is no. There's no convincing evidence that that's the case. It doesn't mean that they don't. It means that we don't. We genuinely don't know. Um, Dylan, I don't know if you want to come back on anything Stephen said, because there was a few points that were sort of addressed at what you were saying earlier with, with regards to teacher um, efficacy. Oh, I think you're on mute, Dylan. Maybe Dylan's gone. Uh, Robert, I don't know whether you want to come back on anything Stephen said. Well, that point, that last point was most directly related to Dylan. Maybe he'll come back on. Oh, okay. there he is. I think he's just unmuted. Maybe. Well, I mean, Dylan, you Tom, you said variation in attainment shows that schools can make a difference. And I think that is very misleading, isn't it? The fact there's variation between... No, I, I didn't say that. Well, you said I, something I like that. 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 that must be... I said, I, said teacher, I said teachers. I said teachers can make a difference. That, that was the statement I, I made. I said teachers can make a difference. I, I do not... But I, I am sort of with Robert in the sense that I don't... I don't... Like, I'll let Robert... Robert's going to say this better than me um, on schools. Like, I don't know if... Because I know Robert did, you did an interview, didn't you, Robert, with a guy, and and he was saying, well, is it a waste of time me sending my son or daughter to a private school, right? And you were like, pretty much. Mm -hmm. um, so Robert, like the differences between schools, I don't believe are like as significant as the media and the league tables and all these other things present. That's my mm -hmm. my opinion, but I want you to come in. Well, again, I'd, I'd start by emphasizing the distinction between what could be and what is. And uh, some of what Stephen's talking about, and Dylan as well, like RCT trials, that's, yeah, you, if schools did do that, you could have a difference. But it doesn't, but you know, 
educational research is littered with studies that don't work in the real world. Uh, of the, you mentioned the Educational Endowment Fund. I think they funded 185 intervention studies and only 15% of them worked, even though they needed a lot of evidence to be able to get the money to do the RCT trial. So I'm not saying those things can't make a difference, but I think I'd, I'd rather step back and um, I can talk about the, the fee paying versus government school issue, uh, but I think there's a larger issue I'd like to make sure it gets on the agenda here. Well, two of them actually, but one is mm. to think, instead of just saying, well, teachers are all we've got, so we've got to make them better so kids do better on their scores. And I'm, I'm kind of skeptical about that. I think instead, if you take a genetic perspective, you, you can think about this somewhat differently. That, you know, it's the difference between, you know, the word, um, I'm embarrassed to say this with uh, educational people here, you probably all know this, but educare means to lead out. And instructiare, it means to shove in, you know. And we, our national curriculum looks to me more like we're trying to shove stuff into kids' heads and we want teachers to shove in more of it and better. Whereas I think the genetic evidence suggests that we need to think about it more in terms of educare, leading kids out, having them find out what they like to do and what they're good at, you know? And that's, um, I think, a different way of thinking about this because I really don't think we're gonna make, I mean, you can never say never and we're only describing what is, but I'm not, there's been so many attempts to get teachers to do this and do that in different curricula. I'm just a bit skeptical about that. And maybe we can rethink this a bit more and think about this for parents as well as for teachers, that we recognize that kids differ genetically. And that suggests we need more of a personalized approach to this rather than a one-size-fits-all curriculum. And to find out what kids like to do means you've got to give them the opportunities to find out what they like to do. Because as I get older, I increasingly think that it's more a matter of appetites than aptitudes. You know, if, if you've seen gifted math kids, you mm -hmm. sort of can't stop them. They joke in math. You know, they hang out with kids who like to talk math. So I mm -hmm. think it's, it would be useful to think about um, uh, helping kids become who they are genetically, which in genetics we call gene environment correlation, rather than thinking about this shoving in a national curriculum. Mm -hmm. Dylan, I'll just check you back, Dylan. I am, yes. Oh, brilliant. Stephen, I think you were trying to make a point to Dylan earlier. Um, I don't know whether you want to sort of just make it in a, in a, in a, again, but in summary, and then maybe give Dylan a chance to respond to it directly. Which one? The one about the, like, the top 5% or something? Well, yeah, I mean, I, yeah. I, I, I think there was some other bits, but that was I mean, the main I, bit. I yeah. made that, um, and I just wanted to repeat, because it seemed to have been ignored, that I can't see how you can judge the effectiveness fairly of, students, of teachers without looking at the results. And as soon as you look at the results, then you've got tautology, not a bootstrap, which is that effectiveness is defined by how well they do, how well the students do, in which case it's not a surprise at all that, you know, the top whatever percent you want to specify have better results than the others. It's not in itself any good evidence um, of differential teacher effectiveness, I don't think. Um, but if it, it is, it is... It is if they actually then, if you once you identify those teachers, they're also more effective the following year. 
Uh, well, I mean, I've, I've done sort of, um, sort of reductive ad absurdum papers with that, where, you know, you'd expect some teachers to be more effective every year and some less effective. And then, you know, the, the next year, some of those would be more effective and some less. After five years, I think it was, or six years, there's no difference from chance. And then you've got, attempt, you've got attempted experiments like the Gates um, report. You know, but but that I mean, actually, if you look at it, it's quite a poor piece of research. Very ambitious, really good. I'm really pleased they tried it, but there was both dropout and subversion of the treatment by I mean, at, at very high levels by the teachers involved. So I don't think we could rest too much on that. There are other studies, and you know, we can get into the statistical details. There are other studies that actually do look at identifying teachers in one year and then looking to see whether they're more effective. And it's more than chance. The point is that, that if, if, you, if these teachers who are successful in one year are just randomly varying, and then you'd expect a regression to the mean, and there is some regression to the mean because all these things are measured with error, but the point is it doesn't disappear. So there are studies that show that, yes, these teachers are consistently more effective, and they're more effective when they move to other schools. I mean, the, the Dallas example is another good example. Um, so, you know, I, I, I'm not going to say that the magnitudes that are estimated in these studies are correct, uh, but I am saying that I think that the evidence is pretty clear that the difference is that the teachers are not all equally effective. I think that that claim, I think, doesn't hold up. I think there are, there are differences. It may not be as big as people claim, but I think there are differences. But nobody here is claiming that, that they're okay. equally effective. What I was okay. suggesting was it, we can't tell. I'm not sure what Robert was saying about them, but he was I just saying. Can, that okay. I think I'm saying we can tell. <laughs> it's an interesting disagreement, Robert. Do you want to try and um, sort of come in with your view on this? If you have to no. use one one side to it. Well, <laughs> you know, I think it's a mugs game to try and, you know, say. No one wants to say teachers, no teacher can have an effect. We have too many personal experiences, if nothing else. But, you know, it is important to recognize that in the population as a whole, with the schools and teachers we've got, the evidence doesn't seem that teachers account for very much variance at all. Schools don't account for much variance, especially after you account for socioeconomic status. Then you could say, okay, well, let's do let's try to do something different and maybe it could make a difference that's what could be but i think it's important to start with what we've got and i think um it really is i think i assume it's going to be kind of shocking for people listening if to, to hear people say well genetics accounts for about two-thirds of the variance and schools don't account for the other third uh ofsted ratings account for four percent of the variance you know a tiny portion of the variance so um so i definitely don't don't want to get into that argument about you know are there uh interventions that make teachers better but i think part of the problem is you know as steven's mentioning is we're stuck with these standardized test scores and that's a limited way of uh, you know, it gets us, it, it becomes circular, as Stephen's saying. And um, 
uh, I just don't, I'm not optimistic myself that we're going to make teachers account for a lot of variants. Somebody, somebody's actually commented uh, in our wonderful crowd today, and I should probably give a massive shout out to everybody listening right. in on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello to everybody. It's been, uh, it's been fantastic to see you all, as always. Um, and, uh, and also a special shout out to our sponsor on the show tonight, this Pearson MFL. Um, and if you want to find out more about Pearson Edexcel's new student-centered French, German and Spanish GCSEs um, that cater to the needs of all learners, regardless of their background, ability or reason for studying, you can visit them at go.pearson.com forward slash MFL. You can also check out the pinned tweet at the top of the space where we've pinned a podcast that was very, very good, actually, which was a discussion between our very own Darren Lester, who's an MFL teacher, with members of the Pearson team and other guests about um, the relevance of language learning. Um, so if you're interested in a podcast this week to listen to while you're sunbathing uh, or rushing to grab a breakfast in New Zealand, uh, or you know, whatever you are doing or wherever you are, then that would be a, one that we would highly recommend on TTR that you check out. Um, uh, a question from the crowd. Uh, given how unreliable some grades are at GCSE or A-level, for example, one in four history and English literature uh, grades are probably out by one grade either way, and one in 25 are out by two grades. I'm guessing that means in the marking sense. Um, what implications does this have for measuring the teacher effect? No. Um, that's a question from the audience. I don't know who wants to take that first. I'll go first. None at all. Go on, Bill. None at all. Because, yes, individual <laughs> GCSE grades do, uh, do have some error, but... If, you, if a kid is taking 10 GCSEs, then they might get unlucky with one or two GCSEs, but they're probably also likely to get lucky in another two GCSEs. So the average GCSE grade, which is often what is used in these experiments, is actually quite reliable. Um, the, the, the other important point is that the reliability of GCSE, it's not really the marking that's the problem. The real problem with the reliability of GCSE, particularly with subjects like history, where there's a small number of questions, is how lucky you are about the questions that came up. And this is not generally treated as reliability in the UK, but the idea is that a history grade should mean the same thing this year and next year. And so the greatest source of unreliability in the examination system is just, would you have been better off taking next year's exam or last year's exam rather than this year's exam? But as I said, those effects average out when you're talking about 10 GCSE grades. Could I make a quick point about genetics? Go, go, and then I'll okay. bring just, Stephen in just as well very quickly. To. to the extent that tests are unreliable, like the GCSE, um, that diminishes the heritability estimate because yeah. it's only mm -hmm. dealing with the reliable yeah. variants. So, if there were mm -hmm. a more reliable test, then heritability would increase. Conversely, though, the fact that heritability is so high implies that there's certainly got of a decent amount of reliability. Good point. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, really interesting. Uh, Stephen, and anything to add on that? Yeah, I, well, I agree. I don't think it makes a, a huge difference. But every error, every bias, every bit of missing data, and every miss um, recording of information, whether it's about background or, or attainment, increases the sort of the mess, the grit in the system. 
the, the, the error component I said. We're never going to be able to predict 100% of attainment. So the more of that there is, the harder it becomes to isolate the teacher impact. Mm. Um, in, in the same way, I guess, as with the um, heritability bit, but in a much worse way because it's so much smaller. Yeah. We're dealing with small change now. Yeah. Um, right, listen, I want to sort of do a role play now because um, in a few weeks' time, um, lots of teachers are going to go back to school. And unfortunately, many of them, I say unfortunately, some people might enjoy it, but many of them will have to sit down in meetings to discuss the performance of their classes. Um, many will have to sit down with senior leaders, with their heads of department, with uh, whoever it is, and almost um, have the, the data uh, interrogated. Um, and, and sometimes some of those conversations could veer into, well, we're going to role play. And if that's OK with all three of you, um, you guys are going to be the teacher in two weeks time. And I am going to be the senior leader who is going to be uh, asking you the typical questions. Now, we are going to imagine um, and I'll start. We'll go in the same order, actually. Robert, you are going to be in the hot seat first, I'm afraid. Um, and basically, it's what you might recommend a teacher to say to particular questions or things that they might be told in a, in a meeting of this nature. Now, often that might not happen in, in, in every school's different and every leader's different. But we're just going to we're just going to role play because I know for a fact that some of these conversations happen. Some of these questions will be asked. Some of these things go on. So, um, so Robert, is that OK with you? Sort um, of. I... <laughs> <laughs> so you, 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 Robert, have just taken through, uh, you know, a number of classes. Uh, through their, their GCSEs in um, in genetics. I mean, bloody hell, you should have a 100% pass rate. Um, you know, but you've, you've just taken them through two years uh, in, your, in your subject area. Thanks for uh, coming in the meeting, Robert. I just want to start by saying your results with class 1A are down by 10% from last year. And, you know, we're really concerned about that. And we want to know what you're going to do about it. Well, I would say that I would give them a copy of my book called Blueprint, How DNA Makes Us Who We Are, and say that you understand that two-thirds of the differences in children's performance is due to inherited DNA differences, and the other third, very little of it, is due to teacher effects. So I'm perfectly willing to do the best I can and to encourage children, but I'm not convinced that the ultimate criterion here is their scores on standardized tests. But in all fairness, Robert, I, I think you might be making an excuse there um, because, you know, we, 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 we're not really into excuses in this school. We're, we're into, you know, the hard data. And, and unfortunately, you know, many of your students have, have not, you know, met their targets. They've not achieved what they, they we know they were supposed to achieve based on, their, their prior data. So I'm wondering, like, what are you going to do different? Well, I think I would, I would still argue, though, that the real data suggests that teacher effects have a, are a small portion, very small portion of the variance. So in fact, there's not much I can do if you're going to judge it strictly on the basis of standardized performance. I think there's a lot more to education 
And I think a large part of it is rather than shoving information into them from the national curriculum, it's to get kids to like to learn. And my fear is that our high stakes testing culture in education is making, is turning kids off to learning. And what they need to do is to learn to learn and to learn to enjoy learning. And that's what I try to emphasize. Thank you, Robert. I, I think we are going to give you a pay rise this year. So um, <laughs> thank you for that. That's, that's really good. Um, Dylan, are, are you ready? I am, yep. <laughs> well, well, first of all, before I start going into role play mode again, I want to ask you, should these meetings about exam results take place? Um, and how should they be conducted? And should there be a focus on, on, on exam results? Before I do, let's go into the role play and then I'll ask you that at the end. So, Dylan, thanks for attending the meeting. Um, we know that, you know, um, down here in, in, uh, in, in South Wales, it's been a, a very rainy and wet year. So you, you've done really well to, to keep your students engaged when it's been so horrible, the weather outside. We know how they get when it's windy. However, your results, Dylan, they are down. Um, you know, you you have two GCSE groups. Um, both of the residuals on those two groups are lower than what we expected them to be and what we wanted them to be. And I, I'm wondering, Dylan, what are you going to do about that? So the first thing, actually, is I need to know whether I'm talking about um, me as a head of department or as an individual teacher. My guess. Is... I'm going to have you. I'm going to. I'm going to have you as a teacher. In no, this that's case, not going to happen. That doesn't happen in schools. It's done. It's done. It's the head of department. So I'm going to be the head of department, okay? And okay, fine. I'll be the head of the history department, and I'm going to say, yes, the reason our results went down this year is because the, compared with the last year, the higher-achieving kids did not choose history. Okay? How do you... I can show you, because we, we looked at the math yeah. scores. We looked at the math scores for the kids who chose history this year, and la last year, and in fact, the kids who chose history this year had lower maths GCSE scores than the ones did last year. So we actually got less academically, ac academically high-achieving kids. Now, you know, I don't know if that's true, of course, but the point is, if the senior leadership aren't able to actually control for that, then they shouldn't be senior leaders. So um, you know, that would be my first kind of uh, defense. And that's why Raise Online was so effective, because Raise Online took out the individual differences. So um, it, it, it controlled for differences between subjects, difficulty which are really significant and also controlled for um, selection but then the, the the other thing i would say you know to the senior leader is okay well how 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 much better do you think our results would be if every teacher in our, in our department was as good as the best five percent of teachers of this subject in the country because i think yeah. it's important that senior leaders are realistic and i think most uh, this is basically robert's point and I think most senior leaders would be quite yeah. surprised by how little difference it would make to have, yeah. if, if all the teachers in your department were amazing, you still wouldn't be getting more than about a half a grade per kid. Um, but, but Dylan, you, that half a grade matters. You, it sounds yeah, to me true, like you're making true, excuses. True, but it's, it, it sounds to me you're making excuses. It sounds to me excuses. like, you know. Of course I'm making excuses. You, yeah, yeah, but there's reasons and there's excuses and you're making excuses. Yes. You, you didn't meet, the students in your classes didn't meet their targets, didn't meet their target grades. And we want to know, you know. Um, well, hang on a minute. What it is. Uh, you, you're, you're throwing target grades into this. So target grades are stupid because they are um, meaningless. 
you know, people talk about minimum target grades. How can a target be a target and be a minimum grade? So, I mean, th these kinds of conversations can be helpful. So I do think that the senior leadership should be sitting down with each head of department in a secondary school and looking at data of the kind that Raise Online produces and says, and, and takes out all the excuses like the high achieving kids didn't choose our subject. And then you can start talking about what we can do to make it more effective. But the other point is, the reason that kids are successful in schools is partly to do with the quality of teaching they receive, but also the extent to which senior leadership engage with parents, partly to do with the way that senior leadership support teachers in disciplining students. So, you know, there's quite a lot of evidence right now that teachers are not backed up when they actually refer kids to discipline problems. So um, I'd be saying, I'll do what I can to improve the quality of teaching in history by looking at a curriculum revision or whatever, but senior leadership have got to do their job as well. You know, it's, the point is that the quality of history teaching is not the only thing that determines the history grades. It's also the quality of school discipline, homework, all those other kinds of things. Dylan, this has been a very interesting uh, meeting for me as a senior leader with, with somebody talking in the way you are. I can't quite get over it, actually, because I've never had a head of department come in and, and give such a comprehensive of their results. So thank you very much. You are getting your rubber stamped promotion. Thank you. Um, Stephen, are you ready to be grilled on your results? Not really, no. Um, <laughs> well, come into, come I don't want to repeat. I don't want to repeat what's already been said. Um, well, no, because you don't know what I'm going to ask you yet. Can, can Go you on, my Thank you. There's the door closing. Thank you. Um, Stephen, take a seat. Um, listen, um, your results as a department are, are actually pretty good, Stephen. No, we're, we're actually pretty pleased with, with your results as, uh, as a department. But the bit we're, we're struggling with is your results are lower than the rest of your team's results this year um, by about 10%. Um, how do you explain that? Uh, well, first of all, we'd have to consider the scale of the data. I mean, so, for example, you're talking about Class 1A. Uh, you know, we're talking about 30 individuals. This is not enough cases for us to make uh, robust claims about differences in attainment. Obviously, you can either make it with larger number of cases or over an extended period of time. But a one-off, you know, you, there's no way we can uh, rule out um, differences in the nature of the students from year to year or between classes. Um, there's also the fact that the, the progress scores, which are, are intended to be independent of attainment, in a raw score attainment, are actually nothing of the sort. So 50% of the variation in progress scores actually comes from raw score attainment. And um, therefore, the, the prior attainment of the students needs to be taken into account. And if you do that, you can see that the, each of the classes achieved pretty much what you would have expected or what you would have predicted before they took that, that year or that phase. Yeah, again, a really good answer, Stephen. These meetings have been really difficult for me, actually, as a senior leader. They, they, I've had three heads of department now. You're the third who's come in and, and really battered it back to me. I think I'm going to have to go back to the drawing board um, on this. Right, I'm coming out of role now. It's starting to get boring. Um, but, but no, genuinely, really good. Because um, the thing is, I, the other thing as well is, like, talk about the variability and, and Robert, I'll come to you first on this one, because I know you've said, and I can't find the quote, I've written it down, and it's just like gone somewhere, I've got papers everywhere. But you said something about 
the education community rejecting um, sort of genetic, I can't, I can't remember, geneticism, right? Uh, and not being comfortable with it or wanting to hear it. The blank slate. Yeah, is, is, Robert, is that, is that true? Like, is that, would you, would you say that's still true? Well, I hope it's not. That's why I've been, you know, trying to do things with the educational community. But I do think of all the areas of the behavioral sciences, education is really a backwater in terms of anti-genetics. Now, I hope that's changing. But, you know, clinical psychology 30 years ago, they thought, well, if these, um, say, childhood disorders, you know, ADHD and and autistic spectrum disorder, both relevant to schools and behavior problems, they're the most heritable um, disorders in psychopathology, full stop. And clinicians, when they started hearing this message, they said, well, that's going to put us out of business. But, you know, my argument is actually it puts you in business. I mean, isn't it good to know? that there are some kids whose, say, ADHD is largely due to genetic factors. And maybe if it is genetic, we can begin to pin down some of the uh, interactions with treatment that might make a difference. So I think there's a lot to play for when things are genetic, but it certainly hasn't put clinical psychologists out of business. I mean, to the contrary, you know, they're uh, more in demand than ever. And I think it's the same thing with teachers, you know, we, um, that, I don't know if it's still true, but when I did a survey of teachers and, and, the rea- and how they feel about genetics, um, one thing we found is that teachers get, hear hardly anything in their teacher training about genetics. They hear about weird single gene disorders like Williams syndrome, and you'll never see a Williams case in your career because you know these single gene disorders are very rare, but they don't hear anything about the evidence for genetics, which is really bizarre when genetics is the most important factor in how well kids do at school. Why is that? Well, I I think it might be, uh, you know, I don't do why so well, but um, it might be that um, teachers have identified themselves with the the view that um, they're essential to how well kids do at school. And, you know, uh, and also, I think it probably comes from, you know, um, Stephen or, or Dylan mentioned the blank slate, Steve Pinker's book from about 20 years ago, which is great. Um, it, that there is that pervades education to a much greater extent than it does other areas of the behavioral sciences, all of which have come around to genetics. And I hope at some point here we can get into the DNA revolution because that's changing everything. Education's gone from the backwater of research in the behavioral sciences to being the star. It's the number one target now because we can explain more variance in school achievement with DNA itself, knowing nothing else about a child than we can with anything else. So I'd, I'd like to get into that at some point because well, we will. Because we, we, we people will. can argue and, about twin studies and adoption studies and all of that, but it's really hard to argue with DNA. Well, what what tell tell me what is the DNA? Because there'll be a lot of people there going DNA revolution. What the hell's that? Including me, actually. So, okay. so tell us. Well, it's the last half of my book, Blueprint: How DNA Makes Us Who We Are. Not just not plugging my book, of course, particularly, but um, it's it's really quite. And the main, you know, it's the fastest moving area of the behavioral sciences. Everyone hears that. You hear about DNA all the time, don't you? You know, and um, but the big advance has come. The human genome sequence was 
the 3 billion base pairs of DNA were sequenced um, 20 years ago. And since then, we've realized that we have millions of DNA differences, on average, say 4 million DNA differences. So what we can do is we can now, with something called a, 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 a chip, that's a, a DNA microarray, for about 40 pounds, we can not sequence the genome yet, but we can look at hundreds, say 700,000 DNA differences and ask which of those differences are related to differences in school achievement. And what all this research has shown across all medical science and behavioral science is that the answer is never one or two or 10 or 100 genes. We're talking about thousands of DNA effects, all of which are very small. But the cool thing is, in the last 10 years, is we can add up those tiny differences to create a score called a polygenic score that predicts the trait we're, we're studying. So in the case of school achievement, we can now explain today 16% of the variance in GCSE scores with DNA in the UK, in this particular population. And that, again, remind you, contrasts to 4% if what we know about a kid is their offset school rating. When you when you say yeah, so so at the moment it's four percent the, the the variance explained through DNA. No, it's it's sorry, four percent for Ofsted school ratings. We can explain sixteen yeah. percent, four times as much variance with DNA, knowing nothing else about a child. Got you, got you. Blooming uh, act, big big stuff. Um, uh, Stephen, do you want to sort of make any comment on that before I go to Dylan? Um, no, I mean, I, I, I'm always, I always feel a bit odd when people keep going on about Ofsted scores. They're terrible scores, <laughs> and you can predict them very well with the intake to the schools. So, I mean, you want to get a good Ofsted score, beard girls, you know, single sex grammar school in a leafy suburb, and so on. Ofsted doesn't seem to be very good at um, looking at school qualities other than the nature of the intake. I think you can predict about 80% or 85% of the grades just from the school intake data. So what that 4% correlation is suggesting is probably to do with the school intake rather than the nature of the school, rather than the Ofsted grade itself. I don't believe Ofsted grades are worth uh, very much. But they all. make a difference, don't they, Stephen? I mean, in the real world, I mean, people move across the street and pay 15% more for a house to get into the mm. right catchment area, don't they? Well, they might. <laughs> well, I think they do, don't they? I mean, they do do that. I mean, they 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 do seem to to put a lot of value on that. D Dylan, do you have a comment on no, that? No, sorry, just 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 take a map on that. I'm not sure that that's the case. I think that the parents and the families, when they're expressing a preference for a school, are expressing a preference for exactly the same characteristics of school intakes that Ofsted is finding and judging to be good. But so, a proportion of parents do look at the officer grade when deciding what school they want to send their children to. Yes, they will. But you're, you're saying it influences it. That's different from saying they look at it. That's like saying teachers use EEF evidence. They, look, they might look at the toolkit. That doesn't mean they're actually acting on what they read. The evidence is quite clear that um, school choices are made a long time before um, the actual enactment of the choice. 
and they're based on sort of local knowledge, bus stop behavior, and all sorts of other factors. Uh, and the kind of things like school effects, you know, pro uh, progress eight scores or, or Ofsted scores could change dramatically by the time the actual choice is enacted rather than just the preferences made. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the choices is, is, has long-term determinants. You know, it may be expressed in, oh, well, you can summarize it as an offset grade, but I, I don't think there's any evidence that that's um, a determinant of choice or a particularly strong determinant of choice or mm. preference. Mm. Um, Dylan, I don't know whether you've got any comments on the DNA revolution or, or anything that sort of followed that from, from Stephen either. Well, let, let me, there's a couple of points I want to make. First, I, I think that we're making extraordinary progress with DNA and polygenic scores. But I think it's important to understand that when psychologists and behavioral scientists talk about predict, they're talking about the correlation isn't zero. So when I say that a variable A predicts variable B, I don't mean you can tell exactly how well variable B will score. It's actually the correlation isn't zero. So there's, there's a real problem here because, you know, Robert in his book Blueprint did use this word predict. And a lot of people took umbrage at this because... He thought they, they thought he was saying that it was determinative that your that your that your DNA is destiny, and I don't think that's true. I think predict in social sciences just means there is some relationship there, and it can be very weak. Well, I do need to respond uh, to that. Yeah. Okay. Well, okay, no on. prediction is explains one hundred percent of variance, and I'm very careful in the book in many places to say we're talking about influence rather than determinism. But that's true of anything, name anything that you can use to predict free school meals, anything. Nothing's going to explain 100% of the variance. So it's important to talk about no, how much here. variance it explains, but it is well, not to say it is merely significant that is not zero. I'm saying 15, 16% of the variance in GCSE scores can be predicted by DNA. And there's nothing, you know, yeah. so what's wrong with saying that DNA predicts GCSE scores accounting for 15% of the variance? Because the readers of that statement don't interpret that word predict in the way that it's used in the, in the social sciences. So when in, in natural language, people hear the, this determinative, uh, deterministic argument. Well, that's what I'm saying, mm. is that when people hear that word predict, they think that it's destiny. And I'm just well, what saying, word would you, you know, prefer? I, I don't have an alternative. I'm just, I'm just pointing out that, you know, Tom asked earlier on, yeah. what, why do people dislike genetics? And I think it's partly to do with the history of eugenics in the 1930s, particularly in the United States, this idea that, that, uh, that genetics is destiny. And I think we're all very uncomfortable with that because of its association with those kinds of practices. And so, yeah. you know, you're right. We, we, we do have to get people understanding that genetics matter. Um, I think nobody's mentioned Catherine Page Harden's book, The Genetic Lottery, which I think is a very interesting um, description of, the, of, of the, the state of the art, but written from a very kind of um, left of center perspective. And she's arguing that we need to understand the role of genetics in student achievement and my own personal experience is that, you know, there's a lot wrong with our curriculum. I think this goes back to the point that Robert uh, made earlier on, but we didn't pick up on. The question is, are GCSE is the right thing for all our children? And my wife and I fostered 15 teenagers over a 15 year period in mm. London. 
And for most of those kids, the last two years, key stage four was a complete waste of time for those children. They would have been far better off doing something much more relevant to their interests. They would, they would you know, motorcycle maintenance or bakery or something like that. I mean, we, we've got a real problem because in the past, vocational education has been a way of marginalizing students from underserved communities. And so it, it, people say we, we can't, we can't, we can't do vocational education. We have to give everybody an academic education, and I think that's just um, wrong. And I think that we need to re reconsider Key Stage Four radically, and and think about you know, I think by the age of fourteen, it's pretty clear whether you're going to be thriving academically or not on these school academic subjects. And I think we should be pushing far more alternatives for students in Key Stage Four than the standard GCSE curriculum. Uh, Robert or Stephen, I'll open it up. To well, you your both. turn, Stephen. Uh, yeah, I, I've got some reservations about the last part that Dylan said. I'm sort of more with, um, I've forgotten his name now again, Scott, uh, Pat Lindsay Patterson, that it's too easy sometimes to forego the benefits of a sort of liberal education for all because it's yeah. hard. So going back to my point about what we could do, I mean, there's a study which I could mention we did um, with 8 million um, people on the National Pupil Database. There were 14, 14 cohorts, and we looked at every year at school from the moment they arrived at the door, all of the data that we had about them, all the possible determinants recorded. Obviously, it's incomplete. We didn't have any genetic data, but there was, you know, special educational needs and disability data and so on. Um, and we just followed them through their school. And we did explain most of the variation in... Uh, at every stage, um, but primarily we were looking at key stage four attainment. And it was clear that things like differences between schools, the type of schools, the Ofsted grades, where they were in a country, made no difference once you'd taken into account those um, 10 years of data about who the student was. And that's why I was suggesting that um, whether people are depressed or exalted by the, you know, the genetic data, we can structure schools so that there are thresholds that each student should be entitled to as a right in a nationally funded state education system. And at a low level, obviously, literacy and basic numeracy should be one of them. And we should be prepared as a country to put uh, more resources where necessary to make it possible for everybody to reach that threshold. And once they have reached that threshold, you can notch it up to the next threshold and so on. So rather than just saying, oh, it's quite hard for some people, let's, let's oh. give them an alternative curriculum. I think in the first instance, I'd like to see much more pressure to put resource and time to um, allow all individuals to reach that threshold, however much time and resource it might yeah. cost, because that's not happening at the moment. And I think that's the way to overcome the genetic gap that we all feel might be... Uh, problematic if it was exposed to clearly. Well, I couldn't agree more, Stephen. I think that's such an important point. And it relates to the idea that finding heritability has no necessary policy implications. You, you gave one mm -hmm. perspective on it, which is the one that it depends on, uh, policy depends on your values as, as well as your knowledge. But I think what people fear mm -hmm. is that heritability will serve a right-wing agenda to say, educate the best, forget the rest. But that's that's a value. And I don't think it's a very smart value because intellectual uh, capital in a society doesn't just depend on those few 
people at the high end of the distribution. It requires uh, a society that has minimal levels of literacy and numeracy, as you point out. So the alternative model is the one that you describe. You say, we need to do whatever it takes to bring everybody up to some minimal levels of literacy and numeracy. So from, I really agree with that. I think it's such an important point. To be a citizen. Exactly. To participate in an increasingly technological society. I don't disagree with that. And I, in fact, I would actually choose to use the OECD's benchmark of level two, which is a score of 420 on PISA, which is what they reckon you need to participate effectively in society. Sure. And I think we should be getting students to that level by the age of 14. So, I mean, I, I'm, I'm very clear that basic education up to the age of 14 should be focused on the kinds of things that you're talking about and recognizing that some students find learning easier than others we should put disproportionate resources to make sure that every student gets up to that level but i'm arguing about what happens beyond that and i'm saying that you know what i'd like to be seeing is a, is, a, is a much more coherent 14 to 18 education offer that actually allow students to pursue different kinds of pathways. I don't think we disagree though, right? We're just, you would agree too, that to do, to do what you wanna do, you need some minimal levels of literacy and numeracy in the early school years. Absolutely, yeah. And, and, and as I said, 420 on PISA is a working benchmark that I think is reasonable. Mm -hmm. And you know, right now, 20% of our 15 year olds aren't reaching that. But then does that go back to the question we posed earlier in terms of how much of that, that percentage is down to just the young people's capability to reach that in a in a is that is that the argument robert's making about in a genetic sense if that makes sense dylan like no, I, I, look I, what, what i'm saying is i think that there may be a very small number of students with specific learning difficulties that will that will be find it very difficult to reach that level yeah but i think basically i'm arguing i'm agreeing with Stephen and and, and and with robert yeah we have to get away from this idea and this is what benjamin bloom argued 50 years ago there are two views of aptitude. One is we teach all kids the same. Some kids remember it, some kids don't. And so the normal distribution becomes a natural output. Benjamin Bloom 50 years ago said, we should regard our educational efforts as a failure to the extent that our results approximate a normal distribution. Our job as teachers should be to destroy the bell curve. If some students need more support, to reach a level of competence that allows them to thrive and flourish in society, then we need to do that. And I think the pupil premium is part of that, but it's it's inadequate. I think we should be funding the education of students uh, lower levels of achievement far more intensively to make sure that everybody gets to a point where they can actually thrive in society. And, and as I said, the, the, the 420 benchmark on PISA is a, a reasonable starting point for that. So every time a kid leaves our schools without that level of numeracy and literacy, we should regard ourselves as failing that student. So would you want, instead of a normal distribution, for like only the right-hand side of it? So everybody's yeah. at some key yeah. level, but we're not inhibiting the people who are going to go much further and do much better. Absolutely. Yeah, okay, yeah. I think that sounds right. We're now coming towards the end, because I could listen to you guys talk like literally all night. Um, maybe if I had a beer in hand as well, it would be better. But, yeah, I mean amazing to just listen to you guys sort of talk it out um i want to ask um a last question because we're sort of running out of time and then i've got kirsty and esther who are coming on in a couple of minutes to talk all about back to school routines and the expectations they have with their classes they're both current 
um, uh, teachers. So they're going to talk about what they're planning to do in a week or two's time when when they get their classes back. And maybe I can pick up some tips for for my groups as well when I when I go back with them in a couple of weeks. But um, I I want to sort of ask a final question of each of you. I'll start with Stephen on this one, and we're going to go back to our overarching question. Um, so you can have whatever, you know, you can have a minute to sort of say whatever you want on this topic. Maybe there's something from tonight that you think uh, is worth drawing out again. What difference do teachers really make to exam results? Stephen, I'm going to come to you first for your final say on this. So in terms of differential effectiveness within a developed school system, the answer is we can't really tell. We know sort of anecdotally and we feel and experience that. Some teachers are better than others. And we know that teachers make a difference overall. But in terms of being able to judge which ones are, until we have a way of identifying effective teachers other than in terms of their attainment, it's not possible really for us to um, judge what difference they make. Um, I agree with Dylan that uh, some kind of randomised trial or uh, some other related robust design might work. But wherever it's been tried, and it has been tried a few times, it has been subverted. Schools and parents and so on don't want their teachers allocated randomly. So I'm afraid at the moment we're we're ignorant. Dylan, I will ask you, maybe you have something different to say on this, or maybe it's exactly the same. What difference do teachers really make to exam results? Well, I think that the summary I would give is, as long as you go to school, it doesn't matter very much which school you go to. That's a reflection Mm. of the relatively small magnitude of the school effect. But I do think it matters very much which classrooms you're in. Uh, but in a way, mm. the, the point that Stephen and I've been discussing is, is actually kind of beyond, kind of irrelevant, really, because I want to move towards a system whereby we stop trying to work out who the good teachers are and who the bad teachers are and instead create a culture where every single teacher improves. And yeah. so I think in many ways, identifying individually effective teachers may be a kind of interesting thing for academics to do. But what we need in schools is a culture where teachers support each other in getting better. Because I think substantial improvements in how effective schools are are possible if we, get, if we just focus on helping every single teacher improve their practice as long as they remain in the job. And finally, Robert. Not much. What difference do teachers really make to exam results? Not much, I would say. And I hope, <laughs> I hope though, that teachers will question the question that we have to get away from evaluating teachers' success strictly on the basis of exam results. For many of the reasons we said, it's often due to selection sorts of things. And I think um, if that's what teachers are supposed to do, I bet you AI is going to do it better in the next few years. What teachers can do is provide that sort of social support and help kids who you know, they can provide more personalized help to children. So um, I think teachers ought to uh, object to the question. Object to the question of what difference do teachers really make to exam results? Always anchor things in terms of exam results, because I think education is a lot more than that. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.